The following message was given by Rayshawn Graves on Sunday, August 13th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Rayshawn. I'm a pastoral assistant here. Uh, and over the last uh, week, we've been looking at the Psalms. And so, Last week we looked at Psalm 31, this week we're going to look at Psalm 32, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there to Psalm 32, uh, but before we, before we start, I just want to take a moment to, uh, to encourage us as God's people, uh, especially in light of, in light of uh, some of yesterday's events. Uh, it was deflating, to say the least, it's, it's needless to say honestly, and just waking up, if you woke up and to your news feeds, to the news channels, and you saw the, the nationalism and, and white supremacy and violence that you saw in Charlottesville, it was, it was deflating. It was grievous, and it was, it was purely demonic. I know we have a variety of views and perspectives here, but I hope that we can all agree that what we saw displayed in this world just 50 miles from us yesterday was, was something in actions and events that God does not condone. And so I honestly wish I would have preached on Psalm 31 this week because over the last 24 hours, it seems like my emotions have been everywhere like the psalmists were. And I know I certainly need to hear that our times and our seasons are in the hands of God right now. And, and maybe you need to hear that too today. I need to be reminded that as God's people, our times such as these filled with chaos and vitriol and all kinds of things, that they are in the hands of our our sovereign, good, and gracious God. Maybe you're here today, and I want to encourage you that God hears you in your distress. And so, uh, I've got plenty of words to say about it, and I'm not going to take our time today uh, to talk about it and reflect on it, but I want to encourage us today and just tell us very briefly that it matters what we do in light of this event. It matters, as God's people, what our response is. It matters how each of us respond as individuals and as a body shaped by the good news of the gospel. Our words matter in these moments. Our words of condemnation, of racism, and white supremacy, and any other form of supremacy other than the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It matters how we love. It matters how we listen to it. It matters how we lament with others with each other. It matters how we confess. Something that we will deal with in this Psalm 32 today, it matters how we confess. Whether it's confessing our apathy or confessing our ignorance or retaliation or vengeance or anger, it matters what we confess. It matters what we confess to God. It matters how we see Him in these situations and the brokenness of this world. It matters how we see His Son and what his son has accomplished for us. Listen, we know that in Christ and through him, the book of Ephesians tells us that God has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between ourselves and him and between each other. He's reconciled image bearers of all types and ethnicities and races, tribes, languages, and tongues to himself and to one another in one new man is what Ephesians tells us. And it's in light of this, it's in light of this, this reality, this, this great indicative that one of the, the big therefores that the Apostle Paul teaches us in the book of Ephesians is that in light of this, we're to separate ourselves from the unfruitful works of darkness. But not just that. He doesn't leave us there. He calls us to expose them as well. 
It's not just enough to be silent. It's not just enough to be passive. It's not just enough to just be quiet. We must speak to God. We must speak prophetically to this world. Not as some utopian hope to change the present circumstances as we know it, but because we serve a just God who is not partial, who brings all to himself, who trusts in him as a refuge. This darkness that Ephesians talks about, it includes the ethnocentric wickedness on display yesterday and in so many other forms in this world, in so many other ways and things that I know are probably on your radars. I would ask you to include this as well, to include speaking against racism, to include calling out those things when you see them and present themselves because the truth of the gospel speaks to them. Jesus speaks to them. I encourage you to allow God to use you as his instruments, his people who are created for good works, to be the flashlight that exposes the darkness and the wickedness in this world, the darkness and the wickedness that blinds many and oppresses others. Let me take a moment to just read a a short prayer of lament for us. Father, our hope is in you. Deliver us from all fears. God, come quickly to help us. Come quickly to save us. In our distress, incline your ears to our cries. Father, too long it seems that our dwelling place has been in a world among those who hate peace. But Father, we know that you are the God of hope and the God of peace. Jesus, would you give us peace to guard our hearts and our minds, even in moments and seasons like these? Even in moments where we're having difficulty processing our emotions, give us peace. You've accomplished this for us on the cross. Lord, we are a people. Help us to be a people who are for peace. Even though the brokenness of this world is for turmoil and for for war all around, against both you and against each other, help us to be a people marked by peace, marked by truth, marked by love, marked by grace. In Jesus' name, in the name of the one who came so that we might have life and life more abundantly. Amen. If you're in Psalm 32, I want to encourage you this morning, stand with me. Let's read this together. I'm going to start my timer and then we're going to to read this thing. Psalms 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. 
Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You can go ahead and be seated. Lord, help us today as we look at what it means to to go to you with our confession and to receive the mercy and grace that you give us through Jesus. We ask this in your name, amen. Uh, I know it's an odd question to ask, maybe especially right after everything I just said, but have you ever heard of water torture? I understand nobody probably likes to think of torture, and I I hope you probably don't either, Uh, but water torture, it doesn't lean towards the kind of torture that's more graphic or gruesome. Uh, It's psychological. There are no weapons, there are no strange devices, there are no hooded executioners, just water. And essentially all it involves is a person being tied down on a flat table, and then when water from a faucet or a funnel is it's placed above their heads, it begins to drip onto a single spot on their foreheads. Drip, drip, drip. Slowly, every two seconds, a constant drip in the same spot. And this continues for hours even days. So for the person tied down, the drops of water that start off as unnoticeable and uh, slow, they slowly start to become annoying. And from being annoying, they start to become intensely aggravating. And after severe, severe aggravation, they become maddening until the person psychologically breaks in hysteria, anxiety, and even insanity, all from a single painless, continuous dripping of water. I hope you've never experienced this, and I hope you never do, but I wonder if you and I might have experienced something similar. A slow, seemingly manageable, yet eventually maddening and tormenting, continuous dripping in your soul. I'm talking about guilt. And I'm not talking about the feelings of false guilt that, that come around when you really haven't done anything wrong. I'm talking about the legitimate guilt, the heavy black cloud that constantly points the finger at you when you know you've done something wrong, when you know you've committed sin, and yet you just aren't willing to admit it. I'm talking about the guilt of unconfessed sin. See, guilt, it starts off as, as small and insignificant, and you, you might be able to ignore it for a while, but it, it won't be ignored for long. You might be able to bury it, but might be able to bury it temporarily, but it, it always seems to resurrect itself. It haunts you. Guilt haunts you for days and for nights, even years, even long after the, the guilt-inducing incident and event has taken place and the consequences are well past. Guilt, it continues to drip and drip and drip. It steals your joy. It steals your peace. It keeps you looking over your shoulder insecurely. It causes you to question even blessings that come to you. It makes you fearfully aware in every kind of subsequent negative moment. And it always seems to be triggered or or show up in the most inconvenient times. You're watching a television show, an unsuspecting conversation you overhear at a restaurant, a lyric on the radio, or even when you're just trying to do well and sit down and, and read your Bible. Here comes guilt. Guilt makes you a fugitive in your own life, constantly running from yourself and running from the truth that you know about yourself. 
And when guilt catches you, because it always does catch you, it pins you down and it heaps heavy blows upon blows upon your fatigued soul until it destroys you forever. And even after that, it still drips and drips and drips. So listen, what do you do about guilt? Do you hide it? Do you silence it? Do you bury it? What about unconfessed sin? Do you, do you lie in order to keep it covered? Deny it? Maybe justify it? Listen, how, how's that working for you? Guilt will not be dictated to by any human in our fallen and sinful condition. It must be dealt with. And until guilt is dealt with, its maddening dripping continues its, its torment of our souls. And all the while, we'll never know true happiness and satisfaction while guilt continues to, to work on us. And David understands this. He's obviously wrestled with guilt before, and he's made all the same attempts at dealing with it with no success. But here in Psalm 32, he now stands on the other side of guilt's deadly grasp. And it's from here that he begins this song. He instructs us as God's people in this song. He instructs us in our frequent and losing battles with, with sin and with guilt. And so for structure's sake, as we, looked at Psalm, as we look at Psalm 32 this week, we just want to touch down on a few different places. You want to see first the ruling of relief in verses 1 through 2, a consequence of concealment in verses 3 through 4, a cry of confession in verse 5, a concluding word of counsel in verse 6, and a picture of post-blessedness in verses 7 through 11. So first we just see this ruling of relief in verses 1 through 2. Uh, blessed is the woman whose student loans are forgiven. <laughs> That's what I wanted to say after I opened a New York Times article the other day that began with this sentence. It said, tens of thousands of people who took out private loans to pay for college but have not been able to keep up payments may get their debts wiped away because critical paperwork is missing. So my heart leaped when I read this headline. Because again, like, like many of you, I've got student loans, and so I anxiously kept scrolling, kept reading, maybe a little too fast because I was honestly hoping that they would tell me my loans are canceled. And so I ended up at the words of this one woman who said, when the judge's rulings wiped out my $31,000 in debt, it was such a relief. You just feel this whole weight lifted. She says, my mom started to cry. That's what Samantha Watson said when her student loans were completely forgiven by a judge when the lender failed, it, failed to prove that it actually owned her loans. And again, if you've ever taken out student loans, you can, you can put yourself in her shoes at this moment. You can understand what this might have felt like. This might have been what David felt like as he makes this statement in verses 1 through 2. Relief, overwhelming happiness and joy at the cancellation of a mountain of seemingly immovable debt. And this is what verses 1 and 2 are. They're a proclamation about a ruling that has now given relief. See, when God, the judge of all, the judge of this world, he gives the ruling that transgression is forgiven, that sin, sin's debt is covered, and that uh, iniquity is not counted against us. It gives guilty people, it gives the transgressors, it gives sinners, those who are shaped in iniquity, it gives happiness and relief. Listen, this is the feeling when sin is actually dealt with, when it's forgiven, when it's covered. Can you imagine what a blessing it would be to be regarded in the sight of a holy and perfect God as if you've never sinned at all? To live as though you never have to fake it and attempt to fool yourself or others about your sin. 
Listen, the question for us is, would you describe this as a blessing? Would you describe this as something that must be conferred upon you or something that you so, so hard and so often seek to earn? Do we recognize that because of our sin, even the sin that you, you dare not confess, the sin that you dare not admit, do you recognize that you're the one in this courtroom on the other side of this judge's bench, the debtor, the transgressor, the, the spiritually deceived? Listen, the reality is that each of us stand there because an attempt, an attempt to measure up to God's standard and his requirements of us, we fail tremendously. We miss it greatly. In an attempt to measure up to even our own standards and how we think we ought to be, we miss that as well. And so in response to God's law and even our standards, we, we deceive ourselves because we believe that God's requirements either aren't as holy and as high as they really are, or we elevate ourselves thinking that we're somehow better, thinking that we've somehow fulfilled these standards already, maybe in comparing ourselves to others. Furthermore, we attempt to deceive ourselves and others by trying to, get, trying to get each other to believe that we're not as messed up as we really are. And so if everyone falls into this category of people who miss it with God and with others, if everyone falls into this category of people who are marked by iniquity and sin, then our guilt, it's, it's well-deserved. The relief that, the, the ruling that we should receive shouldn't be one of relief, it should be one of condemnation and punishment. We deserve the, the continual tapping of, of guilt, of its torment of our souls and whatever consequences that our guilt and our sin bring. But listen, from where David stands in verses one through two, from where he sits as he's making this, this observance, this psalm tells us that there's a way to go from condemned to cleared. There's a way to go from felon to forgiven. But how does he get there? Well, let's look next at the consequences of concealment. We see this in verses three through four. David hasn't always been on this, the good side of the, of the judge. He hasn't always been on this side of blessing and acquittal. And uh, he says, he states for a while it was exactly the opposite. And so explaining and how he gets to where he, where he got in verses one through two, he states where he was previously in the destructive grip of guilt. And again, just like that persistent and continuous dripping of water on the forehead, our guilt torments us. Our sin torments us. But what David says here is it goes even further. It silences us. See, verse 3, it describes the kind of silence that sets in when you think you got away with it. It's the silence that tells you that you can't ever admit that thing to anyone. It's also the silencing of conscience. It's that inner stubbornness that he talks about at the end of this psalm that, and the resistance that tries to gag your conscience from all the accusations that it makes about you, rightly so, in your sin. But what about, what about more than this? The, the silence of, that we do when we're plotting and conspiring in our souls, trying to hide and cover our sin. The silence of conspiracy, trying to figure out how you're going to spin it how you're going to maneuver and evade the consequences of your sin, how to get the boardroom of your heart to assemble a meeting and agree about how you're going to get in front of your sin before you take too much of a loss. See, the silence that David speaks about, it's, it's pretty calm in external appearances. It can fake a smile. It might sit with a stone face, but internally, it's active and devastatingly reckless. 
He says his bones wasted away due to this war in his soul. His body begins to decrease in physical resilience in an attempt to suppress this, in an attempt to suffocate this and keep it down. So as the guilt of his sin torments him, as it drips and drips, it sends him into a a violent rage, trying to tackle his conscience in the same way that a lion roars over its prey before he goes in. What he's saying is that this silence, in this silence, it's literally a devouring of self. It's the spirit, the soul, waging war with the heart and the mind and and guilt, grace, trying to extinguish one another. It's an internal devouring of self. And that's actually what this, this picture of groaning, what David says, that's what it refers to. And so guilt is at work here in all of its torment. Guilt is at work here in, in our souls and in David's soul. But there's more at work here. There's more at work here than simply a guilty conscience. Remember, David, he's, he's one of God's people. Even in these moments, he's one of God's people. And for God's people, we know from Psalm 31 that there's always more at work in us than simply our emotions and our feelings. There's always more at work in our suffering. There's always more at work in our sin and even in our guilt. Again, David's times and his seasons are in God's sovereign and gracious hands. Even his seasons of rebellion, even his seasons of silence and guilt. And so this is more than a guilty conscience. This is God at work behind guilty consciences. See, with every tormenting drip of our souls, with every moment that guilt takes our heart hostage, with every sleepless night, with every frustrating day, meditating on and thinking about and waging war with guilt. In the moments when guilt screams the loudest, we can know God's hand is at work. Particularly his heavy hand that disciplines what David says here. Verse four describes what Hebrews chapter 12 verse six when it says, the Lord, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. See, it's because God owns David that he won't let David be owned by unconfessed sin. Because God owns you, he will not let you be owned by unconfessed sin. Rather, God will will use guilt. God will work through guilt for his glory and for our eternal joy. Which leads me to the question, have you ever considered that guilt can be a grace. Have you ever considered that guilt can be a grace? This transitions us into his cry of confession. One of my favorite preachers once said this in a sermon. He said, guilt can be a grace that leads to reconciliation. For God's people, guilt can be a grace that leads to reconciliation. Meaning that on its own, guilt is like a reckless car that's headed down the freeway of your soul at top speeds while it has you locked in the passenger seat. On its own, guilt will drive you off the cliff of destruction and despair. But for the people of God, those who who turn to him as our fortress and as our refuge, it's actually God's hand that's steering the wheel of guilt. And while our guilt, it desires to drive us down a road of sin away from God at all costs, at any cost, the hand of our sovereign God, it's 
steers us. It's, it takes guilt and steers us right back to himself. God even uses the torments of guilt to bring us nearer to him. He uses the torments of guilt to bring us into his redemptive purposes. I don't have time, but you can ask Joseph's brothers. He works through guilt to bring them into his purposes. Guilt can be a grace that leads to reconciliation. Well, how? It depends on our response to guilt. Let's not mix it up. It's it's possible to, to possess a guilty conscience without having a transformed heart. It's possible to go through the workings of guilt on your soul and be remorseful, to be sorry, to be sad about it without actually experiencing a changed heart. See, guilting can lead us into many different responses to guilt. But guilt can be a grace when the agonizing drip of guilt leads us into a cry of confession. When it leads us into a cry of confession to God. Yesterday, I saw so many people on the television screen protesting against the nationalism and the white supremacy for good causes but many of them were motivated by guilt. Many of them were fighting and swinging and engaging in some of the same destructive behaviors that wickedness and evil were promoting because they were motivated by guilt. Guilt will cause us to do the same if it is not redirected towards God. It will cause us to lash out. It will cause us to act out in ways that are not righteous. Let me tell you that the true response, the God-glorifying response to guilt of any kind is first confession to him. Confession to him. Look at verse 5. In the midst of the torments of guilt and the hottest and most exhausting and withering temperatures of shame's heat, rather than remain in silence, David goes Godward in his guilt. He confesses it to the Lord. He he makes it known and and uncovers it before God when he previously sought to cover it up. He goes towards God and he confesses his rebellion to God because his rebellion has been ultimately against God. And listen, this isn't just about whatever particular sin he's committed. We don't see it here. But sure, yeah, he confesses his specific sin to the Lord. But notice what he says here. He says, my iniquity I did not cover up. He's saying, I'm not just confessing what I've done and the guilt that I feel for my specific actions. Even more, I'm not going to cover up who I am at my very core. I'm not going to cover up who I really am. I'm not just going to say I do bad things sometimes. I'm going to say I am sinful. I am shaped in iniquity. That's what this word iniquity points to, my warped human nature. I commit sin because I am sinful. The fruit of my trees produces sin because the root is grounded in sin. I suppress and I bury guilt because I'm warped. So the gracious and disciplinary hand of God in David's guilt has led him to an accurate diagnosis of his condition. Can you and I, can we say the same things of ourselves here? Can we say that in those moments where we're being tormented by guilt and tormented by our sin, our unconfessed sin, 
that we actually see beyond the surface sins, that we see beyond the external consequences that we might be experiencing, the external sinful actions, and see that they all actually spring out of a root of internal corruption? Can we see that they spring from our being warped? Listen, because if we can, then, then this is where the deceit stops. This is where the minimization or rejection of God's requirements ceases. This is where the heavy burden of our sin is lifted. This is when the ruling of relief sets in. This is where the continuous torment and dripping of guilt stops with confession, being honest about our sin, being honest about ourselves, taking the same perspective and having the same attitude as God concerning our sin. Listen, today, don't suppress your sin. Stop trying to bury it. Stop silencing your conscience. Stop running from it. Stop hiding from it. Stop lying about it. Let guilt be a grace that leads you to reconciliation with your gracious God. Turn to him in the full confession of your sin. Go to him freely, honestly, in humility, and admit your sinfulness. Listen, I know it's not a popular legal strategy these days, but if David were giving you legal advice in the courtroom of heaven, if he were giving you legal advice before you stand at the throne of God, he'd tell you, listen, there is great incentive for you to make a full confession before this judge. There's a great incentive, and that incentive, it's because of who the judge is. It's because of who the judge is. God is gracious to forgive you. See, it says here, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Listen, because of our sovereign, loving, just, and forgiving God, we can go to him in vulnerability, in honesty, in transparency, in the full confession of our sin. Because those who turn to him, those who trust in him as a refuge, he reveals himself, he shows himself to be a father that forgives to be a God who, who covers up and a judge that acquits. It's no coincidence that Paul uses this. He starts out Romans 4 with this psalm because of who God is. That's how our guilt can be a grace that leads to reconciliation. That's how the ruling that is given to God's people, those who trust in him in seasons of guilt, that's how this ruling can be one of blessing and relief. Confess. Confess. So now we see a concluding word of counsel. David's exhortation to us to confess is why everyone who sings this song can share in the biggest implication of this. See, in singing this song and reciting it and praying it, this is, what, this is what David wants us to come away with, this big therefore in verse 6. Therefore, people of God, those who trust in him as a refuge, in your sin, in your guilt, go to God and go to God quickly. Go to God with the quickness. We don't confess our sin to God to, to get God to be forgiving. 
No, what he's saying is we confess our sin to God because he is forgiving. See, last week I mentioned that the Psalms, they encourage us to go to God in the variety of our experiences and our emotions that we encounter in our lives. And the conclusion here is the same. Listen, go to God in your guilt. Pray to him, talk to him, cry out to him in the moments when you're most aware of your guilt and burdened by it and overwhelmed by it. But also go to him in the moments when you're most aware of his forgiveness and his grace. Go to him when you see that most clearly, most vividly. Don't sit silently. Don't wait to try to maneuver in in public relations scheme in your own heart about how you can handle your guilt. And use God as second counsel. Go to him first. You're here today. You're amongst God's gathered people. You sing the songs. You hear his grace. You confess the response of reading. You receive the assurance of, of pardon. You hear God's preached word, his gospel of grace. Do you see him as gracious now? Do you see him as gracious when you gather amongst God's people, not in isolation, but in togetherness, seeing how other broken sinners are brought and, and moved to grace and seeing and experiencing God's grace? Listen, in moments like this, don't hold back. Don't hold back the confession of your guilt and sin. Because listen, what David is saying, it's not always guaranteed to be that way. The sunlight of God's grace may not always appear to you when the clouds, the dark clouds of guilt set in. Holding out in silence, hiding, delaying your confession, it's to, it's to strap yourself back on that table of torment. It's to put that water above your head of that continual tapping of your guilt. Everybody's familiar with the Titanic, right? Well, in his book, 101 Things That You Thought You Knew About the Titanic and Didn't, uh, this guy named Tim Malton, a Titanic researcher, he makes the claim that uh, the captain and the officers of the Titanic, that they waited some 47 minutes after the ship crashed into an iceberg before sending a distress signal. All in efforts to maintain a good PR. Malton stated that they, the ship's authorities, may have been considering the public relations aspect of it and and whether it was going to sink or not because then they would have rather kept it quiet. If we can evaluate the damages, if we can make a good assessment of whether or not this is something that we're actually in need of help of, then we'll make the call. I don't need to make too many connections for us there, right? In the silent suppression of their, of their great need for rescue, it was too late. Everyone on this ship was too late for deliverance. And that's the point being made here in verse 6. Don't, don't buy into the lie that in suppressing guilt and in covering sin, in keeping silent, in waiting, that you can somehow deal with guilt better than God can. Don't take the assessment of your soul and the damage that sin does on your heart and fail to send a distress signal to God. It's costly. It might cost your soul, is what David's saying. Listen, don't keep quiet in the midst of guilt because guilt and sin, it will not be tamed. It is reckless. It is that massive iceberg. It is the reckless ocean. 
in our own efforts and strength to manage it, to cover it up, to spin it. Our guilt, our sin, it will render us helpless and it will destroy us. If we remain deceived in our sin and silenced in our guilt, then there will come a time because of guilt's overwhelming power and guilt's maddening torment that we might find ourselves out of reach from the only help that can save us. Go to God in confession while he may be found. Lastly, this picture of post-blessedness. Verses 7 through 11, it captured the picture of the life after the ruling of relief. It describes the, what, uh, what blessing is on the other side of our initial forgiveness and the acquittal of our sin. See, while forgiveness and grace that, that we receive from God through the confession of our sin, while that is, is freeing, while it is blessed, as David says, we're extended this covering of our transgressions and this acquittal of our iniquity for something more and something greater to enjoy God and to enjoy fellowship with him. See, you could say that this was David's blessed life now. I know that's corny, but I couldn't get away from it. For God's people, this means that the guilty people who once hid from God can now hide in God. Whatever it is your unconfessed sin is, whatever it is that you're wrestling with in attempting to bury your guilt, don't hide it from God, but recognize because of who God is, who he makes himself to be for his people, you can hide your sin in God. He will be our refuge, our protection from condemnation, from despair. So now when our consciences surround us with shouts of overwhelming guilt and accusation, the Lord, the Lord graciously surrounds us with shouts of deliverance, reminding us of the great verdict uh, of our forgiveness. So listen again, what is your unconfessed sin? What is it that you've been trying to hide and, and dare not confess? You can't hide it on your own. In your own strength, you can't bury it once for all. David again tells us to hide it in God. Look at verses eight, eight and nine. They tell us in a way that, that speaks directly now from the mouth of God, that because we're forgiven by God, we can, we can now follow God. We're delivered from guilt so that we can be directed towards his goodness. It's in this blessedness that David speaks of that we can continue to go to God in the confession of our sin, knowing that he will continue to be gracious towards us in counseling us, in watching over us, and in instructing us in the way to go. Furthermore, because of his, his acceptance of us, we don't, have to, we don't have to be stubborn any longer. We don't have to be the, like, the, like the bridled horse or mule that seeks to hide in rebellion. We don't have to give in to the deceptive power of guilt. It seeks to isolate us. That phrase that you see there, or it will not stay near you, talking about that mule, it's literally, I'm not going over there. Mule, you're going to be stubborn, you're going to resist, nobody's got time for you. In other contexts, ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> Our guilt seeks to isolate us to move us away from God. David wants to remind us that in, we can be reminded of an experience in light of who God is, 
we can experience the faithful and committed love of God that has been displayed towards guilty and undeserving people. David wants us to know that God will forgive our sins and not count our sinful condition against us. We can experience the communion and the fellowship that God desires to to have with those who turn to him and acknowledge and confession of our guilt and our sin and trust in him. We can put down the anguish and the, of, of buried guilt and unconfessed sin. And in confession and in forgiveness, we can, we can now be glad in God. We can rejoice in him. Listen, this is what Psalm 32 teaches us. God has provided a way so that guilty and rebellious sinners who hide their sin can be both forgiven of sin and delivered from guilt forever. Those who are sons of God don't have to be slaves to guilt. But now this begs the question, exactly how does God clear the guilty? How can David in one lyric talk about overwhelming guilt and covering up his sin and then just confess it to God and then just be forgiven like that? Our judicial systems, they they certainly see a lot of things, a variety of things, but we, we, we we definitely don't see that. David doesn't mention a word about punishment or retribution or even restitution for his crimes. And looking at this, can can we truly say that justice has been satisfied in this psalm? Do we have to flip all the way over to Romans chapter 4 to see how it's unpacked to get there? Has justice truly been satisfied here in David's confession of sin and his, his quick forgiveness? Sure, there's the discipline of the Lord, but... Isn't somebody responsible for his crimes? I mean, if David, like scholars say, is really writing this after he has murdered Uriah and slept with his wife Bathsheba, doesn't somebody have to pay the consequences? Because if not, then sin hasn't really been dealt with, and guilt still has a legitimate reason to to dwell in his soul. Guilt still has a legitimate reason to dwell in our souls. So how does this happen? Let's circle back around again to verse 1. Look at what it says there. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. You see that word forgiven? It holds the answer to the question of how. It, it, It unpacks the way in which God actually deals with sin and guilt in such a way that David can reflect on the blessedness of a sin acquitted, guilt free life. Because Psalm 32 is music, this word forgiven here, it's it's like an idiom. It's an idiom like we see in our lyrics. A Bible teacher named Alec Moitmer, uh, Moitmer paraphrases verse 1 in this way. He says it this way. He says, blessed is he with iniquity born away, with sin covered. See, forgiven is an idiom here that would have pointed to a concept that the people of the Old Testament would have been familiar with. They would have been familiar with this concept of a scapegoat. In the book of Leviticus, it records how the high priest, how Aaron, on the day of atonement for the sins of God's people, the people of Israel, he would lay his hands on the head of a goat and confess over it all the iniquities, all the transgressions and sins. Notice those words, iniquity, transgression, and sin. See them again in verse 1 of the people of Israel. The high priest would then send the goat into the wilderness to bear away the sins of God's people. And this is how God deals with sin and guilt here in Psalm 32 as well. He forgives it. He bears it away by placing it on another, by placing it on a scapegoat. 
And so as God's people, in the confession of our sin, in going to God, we're acknowledging that we are guilty for our crimes against God and against one another. And we're guilty for our warped condition. And God's gracious response is this. It's this that our sin, our iniquity has been placed on another and it's been born away. But who? Who is this scapegoat here? Who's bearing it away? Who's actually taking the punishment of David's crimes, of our crimes? Who's actually bearing the shame and the guilt that we deserve? When was our sin placed on its head? Where did it go in the wilderness? When did it go there? See, the second time that David uses this word, forgive. The second time that he uses this idiom, it appears in verse 5. And this time he gets a little bit more specific. In verse 1, it's an acknowledgement that the act has, been, uh, has happened for David. Something has been conferred on him. But look what he says in verse 5. And you, you forgave, you bore away. You bore away the iniquity of my sin. See, the high priest, the high priest interceded for the people, but he didn't go into the wilderness. He didn't bear the, the, away the sins of the people. The scapegoat did. The scapegoat didn't actually secure the people's forgiveness. God secured that. The scapegoat was only the sacrifice through which it came. In Psalm 32, we see that God here, God does it all. In verses 1 and 2, God himself is the judge that does not count our sin against us. God himself is the one who covers our sin. And in verse 5, God himself is the scapegoat who bears the iniquity of our sin away. How does he do this? He does this in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. The son of God who became a substitute, a scapegoat for guilty sinners, bearing our sin away forever. Isaiah says that he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows and that he will bear our iniquities. For those who trust in his perfect sin-covering and sin-canceling life in our place, his sacrificial death on the cross in our place for our sins, God has secured this blessed life in which we can come before God in full confession of our sin and receive grace upon grace, forgiveness and gladness in God instead of guilt. See, it's because of Jesus that God displays himself as forgiving for all who trust in him. It's because of him that this statement can end the torment of our guilt-ridden souls. It's because of him that you and I can make our full confession of our unconfessed sin. We can bring to him whatever crime it is that we've committed against God, and we can know that he will be forgiving. It's because of this scapegoat. It's because of Christ's perfect life in our place and his sacrificial death in our place for our sins that this statement, this statement that John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, disciples makes, it's because of this statement that, is, that rings true, that if we confess our sins to him, then he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Guilt can be a grace that leads to reconciliation. Confess your guilt. Come before God today. As we transition into this portion of the service, be reminded of God's sacrifice that he made in communion, in his body broken on the cross, and his blood shed for us, what this communion symbolizes. The bread broken 
the cup representing his blood. Guilty sinners, poor and needy, can come receive free grace and gladness in God and the full confession of our sin. Listen, if your hope is in Jesus, if your hope is in him as a scapegoat to, who bore away your sins and transgressions, even now in maybe your seasons of present guilt, I encourage you to make full confession to him and know that he is faithful and just to forgive you, to bear not just your sin but also your guilt, and you can come forward and receive this communion, this refreshment and reminder of God's grace. But today, if you're here, if you're here and you say, I really don't know where my allegiance lies, I'm not exactly sure what to do with my guilt. I've managed it pretty well. I've managed to bury these unconfessed sins in the pricking of my conscience for for a long time. Maybe you say, I'm trying to do that and it's not working. I encourage you to remain at your seat at this time and pray. Go to God like David does here. In the silence, in the wasting away of your inner turmoil, in the devouring, devouring of self, and go to God in full confession. Because because of Jesus, he will forgive. So today, if your hope is in Christ as your refuge, come forward. But today, if you are here and your hope is not in Jesus, remain at your seat during this time. Pray. Talk to God. And no magic words or formula. Cry to him as David does. And watch. Watch as guilty sinners come forward and receive the free grace that Jesus gives for guilt, for sin. been listening to a message by Rayshon Graves given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.